You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, there can be many congregations in the Free Church where the minister suggests that the chief executive of the Free Church might actually be uh, in the worship service, and then Superman comes up to lead the singing of the sound. So I think... uh, I think there's uh, something very special going on in St. Peter's Free Church these days. Well, uh, as uh, David has said, this is the third of four messages on the Scriptures that the elders asked me to preach. The first was on the necessity of the Bible. Uh, We are so accustomed to having one that it's actually quite difficult to think what would it be to not have one, almost as difficult as thinking what would it be like not to exist, kind of question you maybe asked when you were a child and have ceased asking now that you have discovered what it's like actually to exist. And then we went on uh, shifting our order around because of Easter Sunday uh, to think about studying the Bible, and uh, we tried to eavesdrop a little on Jesus teaching the two on the way to Emmaus on Easter Sunday afternoon, how to study the Scriptures and to find Christ at the heart of them. And this evening we're coming to the subject of the inspiration of Scripture, and our reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning to read at verse 10 and going through to the end of the chapter, if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1196. Just a little background uh, to this. Early in his ministry, uh, Paul, of course, was taken under the wing of the wonderful Barnabas, great encourager of the saints, a man who lived very sacrificially, as we know from the Acts of the Apostles, and they went together on their journeys preaching the gospel, and Mark, John Mark, the author of the second gospel, Matthew Mark, that Mark, accompanied them, two older men and a younger man. And then there was something of a falling out among them uh, because Mark had deserted ship uh, for whatever reason. He had left the apostolic mission And when they were about to set out the next time, uh, Barnabas was keen that Mark would join them. And for whatever reason, Paul thought that was not the best idea. And there was a very sharp division between them. The language that the New Testament uses is very strong language. Um, And they both went their separate ways, Barnabas with Mark. And there was uh, the Apostle Paul left on his own. And he did a very shrewd thing. Uh, He had lost Barnabas, the older man, and so he asked Silas to join him. And he'd lost Mark, a younger man, and so he went on the lookout for a younger man, and uh, he found Timothy. Timothy may well have been converted through the ministry of the apostle Paul, Uh, His mother 
as we are told uh, both in the Acts of the Apostles, and we learn more about her uh, in First and Second Timothy, especially Second Timothy. Uh, mother was a Jewish lady, grandmother was a Jewish lady, uh, and his father was a, a Greek, a Gentile. He had never been circumcised. And so Paul took this younger man, and uh, this younger man becomes uh, his, it seems, the closest colleague of the rest of his ministry. And so at the end of his life, he, he's sure when he writes Second Timothy that he's going to be executed. At the end of his life, he writes these two letters to Timothy. And as we'll see in a moment, they're hugely significant and no part more significant than what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. He's been speaking about false teachers. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, the term inspiration, the inspiration of the Bible is derived from Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 actually originally from the authorized version of the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as it is in the NIV or the ESV, if you're using the ESV, all Scripture is God-breathed. And this famous statement Paul makes 
comes at an, a very significant moment in his ministry and in the life of Timothy. As far as the Apostle Paul himself is concerned, this is a time of significant transition, not just for himself, a transition to heaven, but a transition from the foundational period of the Christian church to the epoch in which the superstructure will be built to the ends of the earth. They've come to the margins of the time when there will no longer be living apostles to whom the church can turn and say, give us divine direction on these matters. And it's partly for this reason that as Paul speaks to Timothy in this last letter to him, there is an emphasis on the Scriptures that you find nowhere else in his letters. Of course, in his letters, uh, it is implied that he trusts the Scriptures. It is implied that he uses and believes the Scriptures. But he doesn't very often talk about the nature of Scripture itself. But here at this transition point, when it's not going to be possible to get letters from apostles to give your church direction, he is essentially saying to Timothy, from now on, Timothy, apostolic teaching, divine revelation is going to be enshrined for you exclusively in the pages of Scripture. And that's why it's so important that he underscores for Timothy the nature of Scripture, that it is of the inspiration of God. The second feature of this particular epoch in which Paul is writing to Timothy, not just as far as he is concerned as an apostle, but as far as the world is concerned, it is a time of deep ungodliness and widespread ungodliness and Throughout this chapter and into chapter 4 and back in 1 Timothy, he has given us an enormous litany of the consequences of the world's sin, both in terms of civic life and personal life and family life and every dimension of life. So it's a time of transition, it's a time of ungodliness. And as far as the church is concerned, now here he is still in the first century within a generation of the resurrection of Jesus, and he is to warn Timothy that there are already false teachers loose in the church, and that their teaching is spreading, as he says in chapter 2 and verse 17, it's spreading like gangrene. And so he wants to emphasize the importance of the Word of God, of the Scriptures. On the one hand, because he's not going to have an apostle beside him. On the other hand, because this is a time of deep ungodliness and the church is going to need direction. The people of God are needing to sink themselves into the truth of God so that the Word of God will transform their lives. And also, he's saying, we need the Word of God because we really need to be able to discern the difference between false teaching 
and true teaching. And we're inclined to say we can do that fairly easily. But the fact of the matter apparently is many Christians aren't able to do it very easily. And so he is profoundly concerned that Timothy be able to distinguish between the truth of the gospel and the falsehood that is being peddled. And that means, I think, in a quite unusual degree that uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking into a context very similar to our own, context of profound ungodliness, and at the same time, a context in which there seems to be an inordinate amount of false teaching within what is pleased to call itself the Christian church. And this is why his word here is of such enormous helpfulness to us. Because if God has given us a word that is divinely inspired, we may be secured as long as we are anchored to it. We will not need to wish we had an apostle in our church. We will not be in any sense Uh, finding ourselves uh, melancholic because of the pressures of this world, because we have light in the darkness, and we will be able to see through false teaching because we have trusted God's Word and because we have uh, these lenses that Scripture provides us with to be able to discern the difference between the true and the false, so that we are not carried away. And so, as he comes to the conclusion of his letter, both for Timothy as a man of God, as a a Christian, as a servant of the Lord, and as you would see from the beginning of chapter 4, for Timothy in terms of the ministry God has given to him, what is to be absolutely central in his life, important, as he goes on to say, for doctrine and reproof and correction and training and righteousness, and for thoroughly equipping the man of God for every good work, what needs to be absolutely central is the inspired Word of God. And there are three things about that that I want us uh, to pick out from the many important things that Paul is emphasizing for us here. The first is this. What does Paul say is so unique about the Bible? The Bible has a privileged position, doesn't it, in the Christian church. Uh, If earlier on in the service, instead of reading Micah, uh, Mary had got up and said, I'm going to read the second of T.S. Eliot's four quartets. There would have been a minor riot in the church. We don't put T.S. Eliot or Shakespeare, or Milton, or Virgil, or whoever, on the same level we put Scripture. So, why are we so obsessed with Scripture? And Paul gives us the answer here. It is because, to use the language of the authorized version, it comes to us by the inspiration of God. 
Now, that's actually one of the worst translations to be found in the authorized version of the Bible. Inspiration conveys the idea of breathing into something. The word Paul uses here, the Greek word theopneustos, doesn't mean that God breathed into anything. It means he breathed something out. So, Paul is not here saying, for example, that the Bible is an inspiring book. It may inspire you, it may not inspire you. That's a matter of relative indifference. That's not what he is saying. Nor is he saying that, for example, Paul wrote Second Timothy and, and God rather liked it. And so he said, I'm going to breathe something special into that. Now, what Paul is saying here is that what we have in Scripture is the fruit of God's out-breathing. Now, you'll notice that Paul doesn't pause to explain to us, and perhaps he thinks he's not capable of explaining to us what the mechanics are between God breathing out His Word and the authors of Scripture writing down His Word. That shouldn't detain us because, as a matter of fact, exactly the same is true of creation. God did not breathe into some dark matter to produce creation. God breathed out. God spoke and the creation came into being. Fascinatingly, although I think many Christians don't seem to grasp this, the Scripture explains nothing about the mechanics, the physics, or the chemistry that was involved between the breathing of God and the coming into order of creation. It doesn't tell us, for example, whether on the second day God made things boom, instantaneously, or whether he took an extended period of time to do it. And so, the Scriptures here are not so much interested in the process by which this inspiration takes place, although it gives us some clues, as the result of it. We can come to the Scriptures, Paul says, with exactly the same confidence we could come to words that were breathed out into the air and heard in our ears from the heart of God Himself. And that, of course, is how Jesus viewed the Bible, isn't it? You remember when He is tempted in the wilderness and uh, he, He alludes to these passages in the book of Deuteronomy, he says to the tempter, man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It actually sounds like quite a good book title that somebody should use. This is how Jesus thought about the Old Testament Scriptures. These words come to me. 
Yes, they come to me through Moses, they come to me through David. But the ultimate author, the inspirer, the one who has breathed them out with all their glorious authority is none other than God himself. And, uh, of course, when he says this, at the very least, he is speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures, isn't he? He's, he's been speaking about them already. Timothy knew the Old Testament Scriptures from infancy. You have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, as a matter of fact, from Timothy's infancy, the only Holy Scriptures there were were the Scriptures of the Old Testament. So, those words undoubtedly and exclusively refer to the Old Testament Scriptures. But it's interesting to see, even within the pages of the New Testament, that we have these little hints that uh, the apostles understood that the writings they were giving to the church, which provided a clearer and fuller revelation of God's purposes than the Old Testament Scriptures did, that were directly built upon the Old Testament Scriptures, that they realized that one of the reasons Christ had called them was that they too were to give the Scriptures like the prophets of God in the Old Testament. A very interesting illustration of that, just a page or two back in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, where uh, Paul says, the Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And you'll notice that both of these statements are in inverted commas. They're both quotations. The first of them is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. The somewhat astonishing thing is the second is from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 7. And he says this with such, you know, he's not talking here about the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, This is almost a casual statement it's interesting how, isn't it interesting how what you really believe comes out most obviously in casual statements when you're not really talking about that? That tells you what you really believe about something. And so already the Apostle Paul is looking at Luke's gospel, whether he had seen a copy of it himself, and he understood that these were the scriptures. If you turn to the second letter of Peter, you remember right at the end, he has this uh, funny little statement about the fact that Paul writes about some things that are difficult to understand. Our dear brother Paul, there are things in his letters that are difficult to understand. Of course, there are things in his letters that are difficult to understand. There are things in Peter's letters that are difficult to understand. But Peter's comment is very interesting. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, these things that are difficult to understand, people twist and distort as they do with the other scriptures. Isn't that interesting? You see, he's not saying there, you know, I, I need to help these people have a right doctrine of scripture. He's actually talking about his dear brother Paul. Whatever fallout they had described in Galatians chapter 2, it was no longer a fallout. And if you're worried about Mark, at the end of this letter, Mark's back in the fold. This is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, They distort Paul's letters 
just as we've seen them do with the other Scriptures. And so, you see, it's just part and parcel of their thinking, and we may come to this, God willing, next week. It's part and parcel of their thinking to recognize that one of the reasons Jesus called them, and Jesus makes this very plain to them, was so that they would give these new Scriptures to the new community of God for the new age of the gospel that would be consistent with the old scriptures, but would be written in the light of this glorious event of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an interesting question. How does God do it? How does he, how does he breathe the scriptures out? Well, he apparently does it in many ways. Remember Hebrews 1, 1, that God has revealed himself in many varying ways uh, to the fathers through the prophets. Sometimes he does it in visions, doesn't he? And sometimes uh, he does it in careful research. That's how we've got Luke's gospel, which Paul says is Scripture because Luke had done careful research on all that was true about Jesus, and he'd written it down. And there are some few bits of Scripture that come to us by divine dictation. Not many, but there are a few. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got that far along in the New Testament, where Christ says to John, write this down. This is a letter. You're my secretary. I'm dictating it to you. And yet, the interesting thing in all of these, even in the visions, in every single instance, even uh, in uh, those occasions where prophets are seeing into the future, there is also a sense that whoever is the, the instrument of the giving of this revelation has been under preparation in order to do it for the whole of their lives. Think about the book of Revelation this way. John has a vision on the island of Patmos. Now, just, just think about having a vision. Just think about having a vision. How do you know how to describe it? Well, you say it's just there, don't you? I mean, God gave him a vision, and it was just there. Um, but it's not like that, is it? A vision has to be described in order to be communicated. And uh, if, for example, you read the big commentaries on the book of Revelation, you'll find the book of Revelation, and this is, this is the truth, the book of Revelation appears to have thousands of allusions to multiple passages in the Old Testament Scriptures. Why is that? Because the only way John is able to describe what he saw was because he had been, as it were, given a biblical vocabulary that he had imbibed from the Old Testament Scriptures in order to describe it accurately. Now, how did he get that? Because he had read his Bible when he got up the morning that he had the vision, not a bit of it, but because he was soaked in the Scriptures. Because uh, 
Over many years, God had been preparing him for this extraordinary vision so that he could actually see what was really there in the vision. Of course, we all think that we see what's there. Well, you know the optical illusion, don't you? What do you see here? I don't mean here. Put my hands behind my back. People look at it and say, "It's it's an ugly old hag. And somebody else says, no, it's a beautiful woman. No, no, it's not a beautiful woman. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an ugly old hag. And some people have said to me, I can look and look and look and look at that picture. I cannot see the beautiful woman. But she's staring you in the face. So we see what's there. Um, there wouldn't be so many problems in the courts over Uh, traffic accidents or murders if that was the case so you see there is always this divine preparation of the instrument in order to prepare the instrument to to be a fit receptor so God is always working providentially now why do I mention all that I mention all that because we mustn't think that the inspiration of Scripture uh, takes place like you may have seen on the television uh, the spooky things that happen to the, the spiritualist medium in the middle of the seance when she's overtaken by this gruff or high-pitched or low-pitched voice and brings messages and she's no longer under control of herself. Sometimes Christians seem to have that idea. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He's always doing strange and quirky things. But no, what Scripture teaches us is that uh, He's working providentially, slowly, in order to prepare the instruments of divine Scripture to be able to interpret the mind and will of God for uh, the people of God. I had a friend uh, who was given to uh, slight spooky things, and um, I remember in one of his prayer letters, he was a a minister, Presbyterian minister, and uh, one of his prayer letters, great big capital letters in the middle of his prayer letter, and the next sentence read, I want you to know that when I wrote that last sentence, the Holy Spirit shot right down through my right arm. So the Holy Spirit writes in capital letters was was what you would deduce. He'd probably just been leaning too hard on his pen, you see. But when people claim that kind of direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit that overtakes and destroys their personalities, they think they are claiming something exceptionally spiritual. But the interesting thing is that the Scriptures don't claim that for themselves in the way in which the Scriptures are given to us. And as I say, God willing, we'll see more of this uh, in our study next Lord's Day evening. God works in this way to bring about something that is absolutely unique. Uh, Letters, Gospels, apocalyptic history that is exactly what he wants us to have and exactly what he wants us to trust.
and it is as precisely what he desires as when he breathed out in the original creation and then said when it was complete, this is all very good. And if you, if you think about it that way, that the God who breathed out creation without explaining to us the mechanics, the physics, the chemistry of what happens when God breathes like that. If God can do that at the beginning, then it shouldn't surprise us that progressively in the lives of those He has chosen to be instruments of His purposes, He can prepare them for just that time when uh, they want to, to write, for example, as Paul writes to Timothy, and to reveal the mind and will of God to him. So, Paul is saying that there is something unique about Scripture. It's breathed out by God. Then I want you to notice in the second place that Paul gives Timothy reasons for trusting Scripture. And there are two of them that are interesting. The first one is the character of those who taught him Scripture. Now, you might think, well, why do we trust Scripture is a theological question. Why would Paul give a very personal answer? Because that's actually how it works for most of us. Um, I remember my friend John Piper being asked uh, at a conference, "Why, why do you trust Scripture? He says, because my mama taught me to trust Scripture. That's not a bad answer, especially if you could see the glorious consistency between what you read in the Scriptures and what you saw in your mother's life. And apparently, that was true of Timothy. He had seen it in his mother and in his grandmother, and that's how it is for most of us, actually. Myself, I didn't know what I was seeing sent to the church at the end of the road. Who knows what kind of church it was? But I had Sunday school teachers who loved the Lord Jesus, and it showed. I understood them before I understood this. And then only slowly, isn't this how it is for some? Only slowly we make the connection between these transformed lives and this book that has the transforming power. You say, oh, now I see it. Now, of course, we're we're 21st century people. We're hugely intellectual. You know, we're way beyond being impressed by individuals. We come at it rationally. I would actually hate to meet a human being who was only rational Poor fellow, he'd be a bachelor all his days, wouldn't he? (laughs) Unless he could find a female rational, you know? Um, Who are we kidding? Who does Richard Dawkins think he's kidding? As though all that there was was this kind of cerebral chemical reaction. God has made us human beings. And this, this is how he functions in our lives. 
because actually we are so irrational through our sin. That's the problem. We are irrational so that we can, we can read the book, but it doesn't make any sense to us until, until, until we see it in real life. The interesting, isn't it interesting? I think most of us are always quite surprised when we hear of somebody who was converted just because they read the Bible. No contact with the church, no contact with other Christians. We think that's really very remarkable. Thank God it happens. But it's quite unusual, actually. Even some people who say, I was just reading the Bible, I want to say when I hear them, come on. You were reading the Bible because you were surrounded by Christians. So there's something very, there's something very normal about the way God works to bring us to this conviction that we can trust the Bible. Augustine, or do we say Augustine? What country are we in, Will? He says, you remember in his confessions, I would never have come to believe the gospel, the scriptures, were it not for the Catholic church. He means by that the universal church. And of course, he says, you know, about, uh, about Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, he said, you know, I didn't think I would find great rhetoric when I came, although I heard you were a, you were a phenomenal orator. But the thing that really struck me wasn't your sermons. That's a bit humbling. But that you were kind to me. And you see, that kindness was a Jesus kindness that opened his eyes to the Bible Jesus and all that the Bible taught about Jesus. And this was, this was true for Timothy. But it's also true that the reason his mother and his grandmother and his Christian friends like Paul had trusted the Scriptures was a reason he could trust the Scriptures as well because they are breathed out by God. How does that work? Uh, let me say, first of all, there is a, there's a kind of logical thing that we need to grasp here. For me to trust something on the basis of testimony is an impossibility if the testimony I hear has a far lower authority than what I'm being invited to trust. Okay? You turn to a fellow student and you, you get some mathematical problem. And you say, you know, what's the solution? Oh, he says, this is the solution. And then the professor comes in, and uh, he's up for a Nobel Prize next year. And he writes the solution on the board. Who are you going to trust? You're going to trust the one who has the greater authority. Now, what human being would be able to say about anything, I am telling you on my authority, this is God's word. Is there anybody you would trust? I mean, just nakedly trust if they said that. I'm telling you, this is God's word. Take it on my authority. 
Oh, my authority is useless when it comes to God's Word. There's only one person who can persuade me that God's Word is actually God's Word. Now, who would that be? Well, it would be God, wouldn't it? Let me put it like this. Um, You pick up the telephone when you go home. And almost instantaneously, it is, it's a phenomenon. You recognize it's your mother on the phone. You didn't write home this week. You recognize that voice instantaneously. On what authority do you recognize that voice? On your father's authority? Is he on the other phone saying, by the way, that's your mother's voice on the phone? No, you recognize your mother's voice exclusively because it is your mother's voice. And usually when one of your friends comes on the phone, especially if you're Irish and living in Scotland and tries to do the wee Irish accent, you see right through it, don't you? It's nonsense. John, you can never imitate my mother. Don't be so stupid. Only my mother's accent sounds like my mother's accent. It is, I find that one of the most amazing things in the world. And it's almost universally true, and it very rarely fails that we can always detect an authentic accent of someone we know. And so it shouldn't surprise us that that's how ultimately we become persuaded that this is God's Word. It's because as we read it, as we hear it, The Spirit employs the Scriptures themselves so that by the Scriptures themselves we become persuaded that this is actually God's Word. Um, It is from one point of view as mysterious as how it is that when your mother phones you at nine o'clock at night, you instantaneously recognize it's your mother. And it's the same with Scripture. You think that's not being logical? It's actually being profoundly logical. Because it's saying the only thing that can authenticate a voice is the authenticity of the voice itself. And this is certainly true. Remember how Jesus puts it? He says, what, what is the keynote of the Good Shepherd? The good shepherd calls his sheep, and his sheep recognize his voice. And uh, many of us, when we think about how we were brought to Christ, that that was exactly how it was. You don't think that the first time Jesus was calling you was the first time you heard his voice, do you? What you say is, you've been calling me, and I wasn't hearing you. You've been calling me, and I didn't recognize your voice. I mean, I've even heard people who who have sat under biblical Christ-centered ministries saying, I went to church for years, and the gospel was never preached to me, when the gospel was being preached to them all the time. It's just that they, they were blind and deaf 
They needed their eyes opened and their ears unstopped. Met a a young man at a conference in Philadelphia years ago who told me he'd been converted listening to, you can tell it was a while ago, listening to a cassette tape of a sermon I'd preached. And I, I walked out, I'm rejoicing, I meet the father at the door, who's also with his son at the conference, he said, uh, I see you are speaking to my son, did he tell you his story? I said, yes, wonderful, you must be hugely encouraged. He said, did he tell you the whole story? Well, how was I to know? I said, well, what's the whole story? Oh, he said he was far away from God. He said, and in our utility room, for some reason or another, we had this huge pile of cassette tapes. And uh, he came in one night, and for no accountable reason, he picked one of the cassette tapes up. It happened to be a sermon of yours. He went to his room, he listened to it. And then the next night, he listened to it. And the next night, he listened to it. He listened to it for a whole month, every single night. Now you're thinking, that must have been a very profound or difficult sermon. Well, of course. On the very 31st night of the month, he believed. Now, it must have been the same sermon. It must have been the same accent. It must have been the same words. So why did he hear something different? the 31st time, because he needed the Spirit of God to unstop his ears so that he could recognize the voice of Jesus Christ. And this is how it works. You see, there's, there's, there's no merely intellectual Christianity. There's no just believing that this book is the inspired Word of God, and then putting it on the shelf. You only really believe it's the Word of God when God Himself authenticates it to you and you, you begin to hear His voice. So, what does that mean in practical terms? Paul has something to say about the uniqueness of Scripture. It's breathed out by God. He tells us why we can trust it because we see its effect in others and because we come to recognize God's voice speaking to us ourselves through it. So what does Paul have to underline about the usefulness of that? You'll notice he uses that very word. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Well, here's what it's useful for. Actually, this is a pretty good grid for our own Bible study, isn't it? First of all, it's useful, he says, for teaching. Because, of course, our minds are darkened and we, we need truth to replace our confused understanding from beginning to end. That's what the Scriptures do. Uh, it makes us wiser than our teachers, Psalm 119 says. It shows us, it shows us light that enables us to understand the cosmos in which we live, that non-Christians of the brightest kind are frustrated in their ability to put it all together and make sense of it. So it's profitable for teaching. It teaches us about Christ. We don't, 
We know nothing about Christ, as we saw the other week, apart from the pages of this book. Not making up our own Jesus. You know, Johnny Cash has a song, Your Own Personal Jesus. I don't think he means it this way. There's no such thing as your own personal Jesus. There's only the real Jesus. The only way you and I know anything about the real Jesus is in the pages of this book. And then he says it's also useful for rebuking. That is to say, it not only addresses the mind, but it reaches down into the conscience. You notice later on he says to Timothy, if this is what it's for, preach it that way. You notice that in chapter 4 and verse 2. So preach the word, rebuke. What's, what's he saying? He's saying, you know, be all fisty when you're preaching. No, no. He's saying the word of God goes down deeper than any therapist could go, any psychiatrist could go, any counselor could go. And, and the word begins to, to bring up stuff into your life and show the, the filth and to, and to shine the light on it. And, and, you, and you become conscious of your sin and failure. Uh, yes, but you're not left there. The word of God, he says, is useful for correcting. I hope things have changed in school. You know, correcting and rebuking emotionally to me are one and the same. You know, the teacher would correct your work meant she was going to rebuke you. You know, red crosses. That's not what this word really means. This means making things correct in your life. Uh, it's, it's, it's language that's used outside the New Testament in the medical world of a of a bone being set, of uh, some aberration being straightened. And that's what the gospel does. It does it to us emotionally, doesn't it? You know, we're basket cases, every one of us. Some of us might not know it yet. The Word of God gets to work in us. We realize we're a little world of chaos and confusion. Then it begins to work. And, and we even begin to, not yet perfectly, we even begin to, to feel healthy in relationship to God. We love Him and we adore Him. We want to know Him. That's what the Word of God does. And then, says Paul, what does it do? It trains us in, in righteousness which isn't a kind of metallic, you know, turns you all into little Pharisees. It's just it makes things right in your life. And that's so attractive. Even to people who hate the gospel, there's something almost unbearably attractive about somebody in whose lives things just seem to, they seem to be right because they're right with God. And so Paul ends by saying that all this is true so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been living through a period in the Christian church when there has been an absolute fascination with revelation coming from God outside of Scripture. I hope we are getting through that period because most of my encounters with people who have 
been so excited about revelation from God outside of Scripture have been thoroughly ignorant of Scripture. It's a, it's a stunning thing. When the Mormon comes to the door and says, we share the Bible, but what you need is the Book of Mormon. What do you say? Do you say, I didn't know that? No, you say, but I think your Bible says what my Bible says at the end of 2 Timothy 3, that the Scriptures themselves are altogether sufficient for everything that the child of God is called to do. So I think I'll stick to its all-sufficiency because anything that added to it would actually take away from it. And that's another reason for studying it, absorbing yourself in it, uh, being devoted to it, loving it, sitting under its exposition, reading it on your own, delving into passages, turning it round in your mind. Because, at least according to Paul, it really transforms our lives and enables us to live for the glory of God. And it does that, just as Paul said to Timothy, because the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And incidentally, if he'd meant the Holy Scriptures are able to tell you how to be justified, he would have said that. What he says is the Holy Scriptures, when you absorb them, begin to make you wise in a foolish world for salvation that is the transformation of the whole of your life. So, as one of our forefathers uh, said, didn't he, Wesley, make me a man. If he had been Susanna Wesley, he would have said, make me a woman of one book. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacred scriptures. Thank you that some of us, like Timothy, have known those scriptures since our childhood and have been surrounded by those whose lives have impressed us so much that we have been drawn to read the scriptures for ourselves. Thank you that in your providence some of us have just happened on the Bible because you have taken hold of us in your sovereignty and shown us our need. And we pray all of us that we may love it more and study it more be changed more by its truth and power, and that as a fellowship we may more and more live by it and become a, a community of people whose lives look like Bible-changed lives, Christ-like lives, that will draw others uh, to search the Scriptures themselves to find Christ there. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.